Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Good evening. Father Fimian, if you would please join us for our opening prayer, if you could please stand. Before I pray, can I congratulate uh, you on this uh, 2012 Fishers of Men Award, Guadalupe uh, Radio Network. Our own Sabatino. Very proud of you. God bless you there. We're very, very grateful to have you here today at St. Michael. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Almighty God and loving Father, we thank you for giving us time on earth to know, love, and serve you. We thank you for the inspiration that you have given us, bringing us here tonight. We ask you to open up our mind and heart that your Holy Spirit may fill us with love, that we may proclaim your truth to all the world. And we ask especially for the intercession of our Blessed Mother Mary, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Father Fimian. Um, just a few quick announcements. Uh, this coming Tuesday, Dr. John Cutterback will be with us at St. James Catholic Church. The title, Concepts of Corruption, Plato's Critique of Forms of Government. Uh, uh, Plato's going to be talking about the problems of different forms of government, critiquing the, the, uh, the positives and the negatives of each one, including democracy. Why is that important? Because we have to know the weaknesses of our own governmental system if we hope not to fall into the snare of the system itself. Do you realize, do you realize that Catholics elected the 45th president of the United States of America. Catholics did. And if Catholics had voted a different way, I mean Catholics as a body, had voted a different way, we'd have a different outcome. Now, why is it that we have the outcome that we have? And I know I'm not supposed to get too much into politics, but to be honest with you, I think it's about time that we throw that idea out the door and we start telling the truth about the situation. It's not because they're a bunch of bad people. It's because they're a bunch of confused people that think they know something which they do not know. And it's our job as Catholics to educate our brothers and sisters. It's our job. Into the presidential campaign alone, $2 billion was poured. $2 billion. Do you know what I could have done with $2 billion? <laughs> For adult education? I mean, you want to talk about having a chance to educate Catholics. It would have been pretty amazing, but that is behind us, and I encourage you to look forward and to ask yourself what our life is really about. Uh, certainly, many of us were excited 
and also disappointed. And I think with that disappointment comes an opportunity for self-reflection to say, what are we doing here as Catholics, as followers of Christ? The Psalms tell us, put not your hope in the princes of men in whom there is no salvation. I don't care what party they run for. There is one person and one person only that can lead this country and our society, and that person is Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Okay. Our speaker this evening, I realize that the topic desire, understanding the will of man, is not the, the greatest nail-biter that I could have chosen. But I do believe that it is one of the best topics that I could have chosen following what happened on Tuesday. Because it stands in stark contrast, in stark contrast to what's going on out there. Rather than feeding us like animals that where we are at the table of the next news tidbit that comes across. We need to be forming ourselves to understand who we are as made in the image and likeness of God. And here we'll have an opportunity to reflect upon human nature as we've done in the past, upon this gift of our will by which we can desire the greatest things and that we can begin once again to follow our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our speaker this evening received his bachelor's in philosophy from Regis University in Denver, Colorado, and pursued graduate studies in Rome at the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas, the Angelicum, where he obtained a bachelor's in philosophy and a licentiate in philosophy. Professor Wunsch flew in at 4 o'clock this afternoon from Rome to be with us. He has spoken widely, lectured on a variety of topics, including the relationship between faith and reason, the connection between philosophy and history, and the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. I will not vouch with the little sleep he got for what he will be saying tonight, but let's all wish him good luck, and please join me in welcoming Professor Mark Lynch. I'm glad he's not vouching for it because I, I prepared a different talk this evening. Uh, yeah, I, I prepared a very different talk. I, I'm going to talk about the different different kinds of coffee, uh, different different you know distinctions between cappuccini, caffè latte, and, and and why what Starbucks calls the caffè ma let's see the, the the caramel macchiato does not make any sense. Okay. It's a topic dear to my heart, okay, but, but, I, but I think I will take up Deacon Sabatino's invitation and speak to you about the will. Uh, and so I appreciate uh, being here. Uh, if I may even offer my two cents, I appreciate what, what Deacon Sabatino had to say about the, the, the present situation in our country. I'm not going to expound upon that profoundly, but I was in Rome as the, the, the news came in that, you know, the there are certain challenges that now seem to be quite imminent that, that face all of us in some very, very uh, uh, ways that hit us very close to home. And I was pondering this as I went on a tour of the Vatican Museums with um, Dr. Elizabeth Lev, a fabulous tour guide, and, um, and also professor for Christum's Rome program, and also for other Rome programs of other institutions abroad and, and a author and speaker. And, and we were having a conversation uh, the day of the election. And we were processing, <laughs> and I'll call it that. And, 
and, and, and yet we always don't, we have to find hope. Okay, we have to find hope. And so what I drew some consolation from is this, uh, is, is that Christ saved the world. Okay, Christ saved the world. Okay, uh, the, that battle is won. Okay, it's not that more battles have to be fought, uh, but the ultimate victory has been won and has been claimed by him. And so what is our responsibility? You know, I feel, you know, do, I, do I need to do everything? You know? And the answer that we came up with is that I have to be holy. I have to be holy. I have to love God. Okay, I have to love my family. And I have to be excellent at what God made me to do. Okay? We each have our role to fill in the body of Christ, a role that can be filled by no other. And our job is to fill it. Okay? And so my friend, uh, Professor Love, said that she's going to go out and try to give a really good tour of the Vatican Museums today. She's going to try to be a good art historian, uh, to communicate about this transcendental beauty, to communicate about the rich patrimony and culture of our church to the next generation. Okay? And she's going to try to do that and raise her family well. Okay? And so that's also what I'm going to try to do. And you know, we can dabble in things in, in our free time insofar as we're able. But remember, Christ did a lot investing his time into the lives of 12 men. Okay. Uh, he, he did other things too, I know. I know he uh, cured a bunch of people and, and, and preached the gospel all over the place. But, but principally, it seems like he invested his time and energy into the lives of 12 men. And the qualitative effect of the depth of what he gave them bore fruit that's just immeasurable. Uh, those small seeds were well fertilized and changed the world. And so there's always hope. Okay, And I think it, uh, you know, Christ called, in I think Luke's gospel, his flock, his small flock. And a small purified flock, all doing their part, living radically the call that God has asked of them, can do much. Okay, And so thanks for letting me sermonize for a minute. Now, this evening, uh, I would like to discuss with you the will, the rational appetite of man, our rational desiring. Now, I'd like to put this, uh, though, in a context. Uh, man is made to order, the intelligent man, the wise man, according to St. Thomas Aquinas, according to Aristotle, is the man who orders. Okay, so I'd like to give an ordered reflection on man, and then uh, so that we could find the context for where this will belongs, this rational appetite. Okay, so uh, uh, I'll spend time providing this ordered reflection of man and building in a kind of crescendo form uh, to a more specific treatment of the will, man's rational appetite. Uh, so again, we'll begin with a reflection upon man in general. Now, why does it matter, a philosophy of man? And let me suggest something at the outset. I don't have a lot of uh, time to talk to you tonight. Obviously, many of the themes I'll have to discuss, I'll have to do so in partial form. Uh, you can always expand the outline. You can always go into more detail. Uh, but I'll try to go into enough breadth and depth 
that you're able to see something of what especially uh, thinkers like Aristotle and St. Thomas had to say about who man is. Uh, and, and then, you know, in, in your own time, uh, maybe you can even spend uh, reading yourself uh, and encountering the thought of St. Thomas and others uh, on the, these same themes. So beginning then with uh, the philosophy of man, okay, and why the philosophy of man matters, okay? Now, it was said uh, by someone who was writing a review of a book I, I recently read that the great atrocities of the 20th century were born in the cafes of Vienna and Paris. Uh, that there are, are horrible atrocities committed against mankind okay, uh, on, on a scale that it was just unprecedented. Now, when we look for explanations, we can find a lot of them. Uh, but certainly, I think we have to look into what allowed man to treat his neighbor as an object, as something that's dispensable. Okay? Uh, there has to be a change in ideology uh, that would lead one to treat man as an object, okay? as something that's dispensable. Uh, we dispose of food. We dispose of paper plates. But man was disposed of uh, in, in all across the world, you know, from, from Cambodia uh, to Russia uh, to Auschwitz. Uh, we found man being treated as an animal, man being treated as an object, as a means to someone else's end, and not as an end in and of himself. Now, how can we explain this? Well, I'm going to offer that part of the explanation comes from the way man came to be seen in the 19th century. And without getting into the history of, of uh, modern philosophy, which is a topic I've discussed, I think, at another one uh, of these lectures that I was invited to, I will simply say that there are a variety and a host of thinkers who, in the 19th century, came to see man as no more than a body, okay, or an animal, or at best a complex animal. And when your philosophy of man is such, the way you're going to treat man will be accordingly. And so what are the options? It seems almost trite. Yeah, I remember talking to my brother-in-law, he's a medical doctor, and he said, well, why do you guys spend so much time talking about terms and philosophy? Uh, you know, man is man. What, what, what's the deal? And I'm like, well, it's a big deal because not everyone agrees about who man is. Okay? And so there's three general theses about who man is. Uh, three, I think, distinct possibilities. Uh, one would be uh, that man... Man doesn't start with S. Uh, man <laughs> is a soul. Okay? Man is a soul. Another distinct thesis would be that man is a body. And then the kind of halfway house, if you will, uh, maybe even better put, the mean between these extreme positions would be the position that man is a body-soul composite. It'll be my position, okay, and, and the, the philosophy of Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas at least, argue for the position that man is a body-soul composite. 
Now, I think we can just see how our reflection on man would be different if we were to assent to the position that man is just a body. Think about how that would change how one would treat man. If man was just a body, there was no immortal soul, how would that affect the way you viewed man? What would distinguish him from an animal? Could we distinguish him from an animal? These are questions I would like you to think about, to ponder. Now, the other position that, that man is a soul. Okay? Now, this position has been advocated by a variety of thinkers through the history of philosophy. Uh, Plato even seemed to hint at it to some extent in, in his thought. Uh, even Augustine, although his position was significantly more nuanced, hinted at this position. Descartes in the modern era uh, very much would assent to this position. Uh, that man is a soul, simply making use of the body. Uh, they would make that position. Okay? And I ask you to ponder how that would affect the way we treat our bodies. Uh, there are a variety of thinkers who still hold to this kind of dualism. That man is a soul, the body is a separate substance that is peculiarly united to the soul. Okay? Now that's another position that's advocated. Now, now my, what I'm going to do tonight is not to go into these three different uh, visions of man in great detail. But I'd like you to think at your leisure about how the story would be different if man is not okay, what Aristotle and Thomas says he is, a body-soul composite. A body which is an essential part of who we are. Okay? If man is just a soul, he can be indiscriminately, his soul, put into another body. Okay, uh, Plato would advocate a thesis of the transmigration of souls, a theory of reincarnation, uh, that the soul could come into other bodies and you would still be you to some extent. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't like the idea of myself being put into, no offense, a female body. I mean, I'd feel like I'm missing, I'm, I'm not quite myself, you know. Uh, <laughs> If I was put in the body of, I don't know, a wombat, okay, I would feel less of myself, okay? And this speaks, though, okay, I speak in jest to some extent, but it speaks to something that's profound. That the body, your body, is an, not accidental. It's not like your car, okay? Sometimes we speak of our car as if it's part of ourselves. I got in a wreck on the way to work. And listen to that language. I got in a wreck on the way to work. It's not me. It's my car, okay? Uh, I got in a wreck on the way. I mean, if I got in a wreck, it would be different, okay? If I was injured and my car is injured. Well, it's interesting. In studying the history of philosophy, you study the thought of Descartes, and, and he sounds like that. That when he says, I weigh 35 pounds, he's talking about his body. And when he says, I know, I understand, he's talking about himself, the soul. Okay? And so the body and the soul are two 
very distinct things. Whereas for another person who says, I weigh 35 pounds, and I know that 2 plus 2 is 4, I'm speaking of myself in both cases. But not so for every philosopher. Okay, So you have to understand where people are coming from. Now certainly, uh, if you would, you think of individuals who would advocate the thesis that man is just a body. Uh, there's some forms of, of the Marxist, for instance, Marxist ideology, uh, certainly would advocate that man is nothing more than a body. And the thesis goes is, is back to ancient Greece, Democritus, who Marx wrote his thesis upon. Uh, a pre-Socratic philosopher would hold this position. And there's a host of others, in particular, in the modern world, that would advocate this position. Okay, so I just want you to see initially the relevance of asking, who am I? Now that is, who are we, in a general sense. Uh, and again, Aristotle uh, admonishes us to know thyself. So I'm going to present tonight a way to know thyself in an Aristotelian fashion, okay, or a Thomistic fashion. And that's what I'll dedicate the rest of my time to, is to provide an ordered way to know who we are collectively, okay, as, as members of the same species. So now the next point then, my first was introduction, okay, these introductory notes. Sorry if I keep brushing this. In fact, would this help if I remove No, it doesn't help. I'll remove it anyway. Does that help, do you think? Do you think I might say I keep brushing, I keep brushing the, okay. Whoa, 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 or, all right, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the 15 minutes of sleep talking right there, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Glad we caught that on video. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> now, if, 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 if that's as bad as it gets, actually, I'm fine. You know, I mean, I'm fine. Okay, so, so that was our introduction. Who is man? Okay, we can, we can title our introduction, Who is Man? Now, we're going to begin an ordered reflection on man. We have to choose some framework, okay? And, and I think there's good reason uh, to choose a Aristotelian Thomistic framework. And so that's what we're going to select this evening. Now, St. Thomas says we begin by making the most general observations. And slowly we become more specific as we look at whatever we are inquiring into. And so we begin with reflection on man as natural. Man as natural. So Thomas says, let's take the most basic generalizations we can make about man. And the first is that man is natural. Okay, now what does natural mean? Well, he's not supernatural, okay? Uh, uh, that, that, that begins to hint at it. He's not above nature. So what is it then that all natural things, all things in nature have in common? And it's that he's material and mutable. He's changeable. Okay? He's material and he is changeable. And from this perspective, man is like a rock. Man is like water. Man is like a plant and man is like an animal. Okay? He is part of the natural world. 
And we can begin there with the most basic generalization. Now, all natural things for Aristotle are composed of form and matter. Okay, and, and we'll have to have a class on natural philosophy to, to get into all the ins and outs of this. But basically, form provides him with stability. It gives to him a nature. It makes him to be what he is. To be a man and not a cat. Uh, to be uh, a man and not a chimpanzee or uh, a palm tree. But all natural things also have a principle of change. Okay? It was one of the observations of Aristotle, of the natural world, that hardwired into every contingent thing are principles of stability and change. Things fight to preserve themselves. I mean, even from a contemporary physics perspective, you can speak of different forces that, that, that you could incorporate into this discussion that speak to uh, the desire, if you will, of matter to be stable. But it's also changing. Uh, he didn't agree with Parmenides that, that there's no change. Uh, certainly, things change. And so they also have a material principle which is likened to a potency to change. So the form gives man stability and his nature, which is stable. Uh, uh, just to speak about this briefly, you know, like when I get my hair cut, I am different, but I am still a man. Okay? There's something that is holding me together. In fact, it's the same thing that's been holding me together since conception and making me to be who I am. It's my form, or in this case, the form of a living thing, it's called a soul, that is making me to be what I am, giving to me a stable identity. And yet, I have a potency for change. And this is a part of the natural world. God doesn't change, but material things, natural things, do change. Okay, so man has that in common with all natural things, and that goes for us. We, we belong in this world. And yet, uh, we have a unique principle or soul, as we'll speak about, that is both in the world but not of the world, I guess you can, speak, you can say, and, and, and to put it very loosely. But now let's move on and, and try to become more and more specific. Man is not just natural like a rock, but he's more exciting than a rock. He's living. He's alive. He's alive. So are plants, though. And so we have to look at what, what makes man and plants and animals different. And what makes them different is they are alive. But what does that mean to be alive? Well, it means that they are self-movers. A rock doesn't move itself. You can kick it. You can throw it through a window. It can do damage, but it doesn't throw itself. It doesn't move itself. The principle or the origin of its movement does not come from within. It comes from without. But given the right nourishment, given the right nutrients, living things move themselves. Plants grow. Plants are nourished. Okay? Plants can even reproduce. They can act on their own given the right conditions. Okay? And this is, uh, again, a way in which as we move up this, this hierarchy of living things, 
that things begin to resemble even God more and more. We say that God is supremely alive. Okay? And we see, as we move up this hierarchy, how these things participate in greater and greater ways in what it means to fully be alive. Now, freedom is one of those things that we have in common with God that makes us most like him, and we're getting there. But now, uh, we also see that man has organic parts. Okay? That distinguishes him as well. You look at a natural thing, even water. You break up water, pour it into different cups, and they're homogenous parts. They're all the same. But with living things, you have parts that are different. They perform different functions, but they all serve the whole. Uh, these are characteristics of living things. And so they have, again, an ability to act. Now, what do we call this ability to act? Okay, we're getting to a foundation for our discussion of the will. Because the will is one of these. It's a power or faculty of man. It's a power that gives us an ability to do something. Okay, that's what powers do. It gives us an ability to act. And when do we know and how do we know how many powers something has? Well, when we see it acting in a certain way, and then seeing it acting in another way, we say, ooh, it has another power. We see that I see something. Okay, you come across some mysterious animal or thing, thing. We'll call it a thing, and and all of a sudden, ooh, it's self-moving. It has a power, a power of self-moving. Okay, uh, and then and then as you kind of move over to the side and it follows you, like it can see. It is a power to see. And then if you move and you see it responding, it has a power of hearing. It's acting in different ways, and its seeing is not its hearing, so it has distinct powers. So powers give to things abilities to act. We say that all living things have three fundamental general powers. We call them vegetative powers. We speak of nutrition, growth, and reproduction as the most basic powers that pertain to uh, living being. We speak of man as living. But now let's move forward. We're getting, we're working up the food chain very rapidly here. Let's speak of man as sentient. Okay? And this is a way in which man and animals are different from plants. How are they different? Okay, well, what is that difference? Well, if we could try to get at it exactly, well, it would be something like this. What do they do that plants do not do? Now, plants can receive water, okay? But when you bring food to your animal, your animal knows the food's coming. And it even desires it in a way, okay? And so we're moving into certain other powers that are higher. And so let's speak of them. And so as we speak of man as sentient, let me distinguish two general kinds of powers now that apply to all sentient beings. Those are powers of cognition and powers of appetite. Okay, powers of cognition and powers of appetite. Powers of cognition allow us to know. Powers of appetite generically allow us to desire. 
to be moved by what we know. Because it's one thing for me to sense, to sense the coffee when it's brewing. It's another thing to desire it. Agreed? Okay, it's one thing to know it, another thing to want it. In my knowing is not my wanting, although they're related in important ways, are they not? Well, the important way is that you can't desire anything you don't know. Okay, so apprehension or cognition precedes appetite. Okay, and they're, they're very closely, closely related. Now, this is exciting. What, I mean, you, and these are questions you just might not have thought about because I have nothing better to do with my time. Uh, I, I, I do think about these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Um, so, what is happening, okay, in cognition? What is going on when I smell the coffee? When I see my friend coming around the corner? When I know... Even 2 plus 2 is 4, okay? Uh, loosely, we can even put this under the same heading. I'm going to say reality, as it exists outside of me, is somehow getting in here. Reality, as it exists outside of me, is coming to exist in a cognitional way, a different way, in me. Okay? That's kind of what's going on. When I see the hospital, you drive by the hospital, the hospital, I, and I know the hospital's over there. I don't grab it and stuff it in. Ah, the hospital's in here. But I know it. And so with cognition, uh, with cognition, reality as it exists, I might even subject you to my drawings of cats here. Why not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's late. Yeah, I've been up late. Uh, I've been up late. Not bad, huh? Not bad at all. Not bad. I spend less time working on the body here. Yeah, 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 yeah. There it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Grazie. 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 Si, si chiamo Maffeo. Yeah, that's, that's uh, Maffeo, the cat. Uh, if yeah, anyone gets. Big time extra credit points if they can identify who Maffeo is named after. Maffeo. Maffeo is Pope Urban VIII. It's Maffeo Barberini. And, and, and I draw this, this cat from time to time. And, and, and he was a great patron of the arts. And so we went through the Vatican Museum seeing images of Maffeo. And I, I even sat in on a student presentation. They didn't know I was going to be there. Uh, and they're speaking about Maffeo Barberini in some context. I, I can't remember what it was. And they put up in their little slide um, the PowerPoint presentation a picture of a cat with a cardinal's hat on. There's Maffeo. I give him to you. But anyway. So what's, what's happening? Okay, what's happening? Well, when I sense the cat, the cat is in me. The cat is in me. Okay, the cat comes to be in a different way. Okay, it comes to be intentionally, it's called. But what that means is simply there is a movement going on. Reality, as it exists outside of us, is coming to exist inside of us. Now, to anticipate, okay, this is just sense knowledge, but the same principles apply to cognition at the level of intellectual knowing. But this is why we say truth is in the intellect. 
and goodness is in things. But truth is in the intellect, and goodness is in things. It's in the intellect because it means reality is coming to be in me. Now, what happens with appetite? So cognition, cognition involves reality as it exists outside of me, coming to exist in me in a cognitional way, by way of a representation. I receive a likeness of what is external to me. Okay? Now, on the basis of cognition, what can I then do? I can then be moved in a different way to things as they exist in themselves. So the movement with cognition is of things as they exist in themselves to things as they exist in me in this alternative form. But on the basis of my knowing the cat, I'm then able to love the cat and pet his fur. So, so because you know the cat, you can then okay, be moved by him. The being moved by him is a movement of appetite. Okay? Is a movement of appetite. Uh, it's a movement that follows upon cognition. It presupposes it. But it's a different kind of movement. In one case, reality as it exists outside of me is coming to exist in me in a cognitional fashion. And with appetite, I am being moved to things. Now, why am I moved to things? Remember, truth is in the intellect, and goodness is in things. I'm moved to things because they are good. Okay? That means they are desirable. They are able to elicit my desire when known by a being who has that power. The plant will never desire anything. But animals, in a very basic way, are able to desire. And we'll talk about how their desire is different from ours. It's very important. Because they have the power to be moved by what they know. Okay? And also to be moved away from that. If it's a dangerous cat, you, know, you might have a power to be moved away. Okay. Uh, now, so cognition and appetite. Hopefully we get the basic distinction there. Now, we have a variety of powers of sense cognition. Okay, we have a variety of powers. We have five external senses. That's where reality comes to be in me initially. Okay, and Aristotle will say there is nothing in the mind that wasn't first in the senses. They are the gateways, if you will. They're the entrance points of reality into me. And this is what Aristotle meant with this famous phrase, that man is in potential to become all things. What on earth is he talking about? That we, we turn into stuff, you know? We turn into cows and, and, and cats? No. But cats come to be in me. Everything can come to be in me, okay? Uh, and it's the great dignity of man that all things that exist in the world as separate can come once again to exist in a united fashion in a single, in a single place, in the mind of man. And so I'm in potency to know all things. And that's what he meant by saying that man is the potency to become all things. 
because he can become them all cognitionally. Okay? And that's a great dignity. Now, animals can become particular things cognitionally. They can know particular things by way of their five external senses. But are those the only sense powers we have? We have to look at that. Does that explain all the actions of knowing of an animal? And the answer is no. Why? Because they don't just sense other things. They are able to collate and collect what they know. Okay? Because think about it. If your eye just knew color and your ear just heard sound, well then all that knowledge would be separate. There has to be a way to bring it together, to organize it. And they speak, Aristotle and Thomas, of the common sense, which isn't common sense in the way you're used to using the term. Uh, but it's, it's a common sense. It's the first of the interior senses uh, that we could even speak of as being housed in the brain. Okay, where they, they bring together all of the data of our external senses. And then we can know not just orange, what I see of the cat, not just soft, not just meowing, but the orange meowing soft thing. We know we're able to collate, to collect, to organize, to gather, and to form what is called a phantasm, a representation of the particular material thing replete with all of its sensible characteristics. And that is something even animals can do, right? Now, what else can they do? They can retain that knowledge. They have something of a memory, right? We call it an imagination, even, or memory. They can retain what they know. Uh, that is something they're able to do. Okay? And man's able to do these things, too. And it becomes more complicated. If I had more time, I'd get into the different internal senses. But we'll leave it at that. Now, they also have the ability to be moved by what they know. And the movement, then, of their appetite the movement of their sense appetite. So under this heading, I could do a big tree diagram, but I'm running out of space. We have sense cognition divided into five external senses. There's technically four internal senses, common sense, imagination, uh, something called the esteemative sense, and then there's the memory. The esteemative sense in man becomes the cogitative sense. But we're not going to get into all those particulars because we're supposed to be talking about the will today and I haven't even gotten there. Anyway, but I, I have 15 minutes. So this is good. Uh, this is good. Yeah, well, this, is all, this is all fine and dandy. Okay, very good. So there we are. So, so, so now we're moving into the sense appetite. So sense appetite will be the response to what we know. And animals certainly can know things. Uh, by the way, the esteemative sense is not just knowledge of things, but knowledge of, of them is harmful or helpful. And that's kind of the highest knowledge animals have. And, and, and think about it. It's expressed by what they talk about. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking when the, maybe, maybe, maybe all, the, all the, the Disney's right, and they're having all these great conversations. I mean, <laughs> Nemo was on the plane, and, and the animals seem to be having these great conversations. But I think usually... Uh, like the far side. I mean, it's all funny because animals don't do that, you know. Uh, and that's what we recognize, the discontinuity there, and we find that funny. Uh, I think normally they, they just, grr, grr, help, or go get that, or let's go. I mean, it's, it's like, it's, 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 you know, 
Let's go get something. Let's get away from something. Let's maul that thing. Let's 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 move away. I mean, it, uh, th that's kind of what they're talking about. And so what they talk about is based on what they know. Things is harmful or helpful. It's kind of the highest knowledge they have, right? And then their appetite is their movement in response to that. And it's associated with the passions or emotions. Okay, our emotions. Okay, their responses to what we have sensed. We have different emotional responses. Uh, I could get into more distinctions there. There's uh, different kinds of passions and emotions. Okay, and with man, they can come under the influence of a higher appetite, which we're now on the verge of discussing. As we move to man as rational. Man as rational. Now, does man do something an animal does not do? That's the question we ask, that have to ask ourselves. To see, are there powers that belong to him that do not belong to animals? If we can say yes, then we can say man is different. We can know through his actions, because actions reveal the nature of a thing, that he is different. And so let's take a look and see whether man is different. Is there a knowing of man that is higher than that of an animal? And is there a desiring of man that is higher and different than the desiring of an animal? Okay, let's, let's take a look at that question. And maybe I'll begin just with a, kind of an interesting thing that might illuminate this. The beavers always make, what do they make? Dams, good, just making sure. Do beavers always make their dams the same way? Does man always make his home the same way? Why? Why is the question. Is there a higher kind of knowledge that man has that allows him to act, to have a, a diversity of responses, or at least a possibility to act differently in a variety of ways? Well, think about this. Maybe what the animal has in mind for a home is a particular image. A particular image represents a particular material thing. And maybe that's its knowledge. But maybe man can have an idea of a home universally that is not particular, but universal. Maybe man can know what a home is as universal and not just have a single particular image, but he can know what a home is and see how something made out of adobe, how something made out of clay, out of bricks, out of wood, made in a variety of ways, a variety of sizes, how all of these particulars fit under the universal idea of home. So what is that kind of knowledge that man has that's different? Well, think also about his conversation that's different than the conversation of animals. Now, sometimes I think 
the students in our dorms have conversations that don't really go very far above this. I'm just speculating. I'm just speculating. Arr, go get that. Arr, run away. You know, it, I'm just judging by some of their output on, on Monday mornings, you know, there's not a lot. Uh, but, but, you know, but, but actually, we also have a debate society at our school. And, 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 and I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, they, they talk, what is the best form of government? I mean, I don't think a lot of birds get together and say, hey, hey, stop flying around for a minute, okay? What's the best form of government? Have you pondered this? You know, <laughs> you know have, you, have you given that? I, I don't think it happens. Why? There's a higher kind of knowing. It's called universal knowledge. Man is somehow able to move from particulars to universals. Universals we can think of in terms as common nouns. We don't just know this dog or Garfield or Maffeo, but we know cat and dog. We're able to take what is common in a variety of particulars, uh, we're able to focus on what they hold in common or what makes them to be what they are, okay, apart from other individuating accidental distinctions and differences. And so with this higher form of knowing comes what? A higher form of desiring. Now, we can know particulars by way of our senses. And on the basis of knowing particulars, we can desire particulars. But guess what we get to desire because we can know universally? Okay, again, we can know particular goods, the good of the food to eat for the cat. But with the universal knowledge, what can we know that exceeds particular goodness? We can know goodness generally. Goodness universally, not just particular goods, but we can know goodness universally. In fact, we desire goodness universally. That is unrestricted goodness. We desire the complete perfect good. And that is something that all men agree upon. And this is one of the most fascinating aspects now of our will. Our intellect knows truth universally. Our will can desire goodness universally. And also is able to deliberate, okay, something animals cannot do. It has freedom. We'll talk about that in a moment. That allows us to decide and to deliberate and then to choose between uh, two different goods. But one of these characteristics of our will, before we talk about our will as free, I want to speak about this, how our will is determined. How there's a way in which our will is determined. And what would that be? Well, if there's something everybody wills necessarily, then our will is determined. And what is it that everybody wills necessarily? Happiness. We all will happiness necessarily. I mean, no matter how, what, what people say, okay, well, I, 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 I don't want, I, you know, I'm just doing this for that, this for that. If you keep saying, well, why are you doing that? Why are you with the Institute of Catholic Culture? Why did you do this? Why did you do that? Eventually, they come up with, well, ultimately, it's 
to be happy. And so we have an ultimate good that we desire. This ultimate good is ultimately the, the, the thing we all desire universally is happiness. Now, now, okay, let's say that, though. What do we know our happiness to be found in? God. Now, do you think we all will God necessarily? Not consciously. That's a good distinction. It's a very, 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 very good distinction. And we know this because we talk to people. And they say they don't will God. Now, in some way they do, because in willing their happiness, they, des they, they desire their happiness can only be found in a complete good. And God is goodness completely. And so, even though they don't know it, they do seek for their happiness in God. But Thomas says it's like this. It's like when you see someone coming around the corner. You know someone is there, but you don't know yet that it's Paul. That is how our will is ordered to our end. We know that it's in a perfect good that will make us perfectly happy. But we don't know in what good that consists. That it's in God. And that has to be proven. And can be proven rationally. And has been revealed by faith that God is the answer. And because we need that answer early in life, God was good enough to give us the answer right away. But even philosophy can prove that it's in God. It's not in power. It's not in wealth. It's not in pleasure. And all of those other goods we posit or confuse with being our ultimate good. Uh, I give a talk on Boethius. Uh, he, he has a great reflection on this. Aristotle does as well. From a philosophical perspective of man discovering that it's only in God that his ultimate desires can be fulfilled. But now, we know that then the will desires this necessarily. But the will is also free. And how do we discover this? How do we discover that the will is free? Well, we make choices. We sometimes are frustrated as we deliberate. Should I do this? Should I do that? But how is, let me ask you, the determinate nature of our will, which is to goodness universally, how does it provide the context for freedom? Well, how can we say that one good is better than another if we didn't know what goodness is generically? Okay, If something's better than something else, we have to in some way know what is goodness in order to make a comparison between goods. And so the very determinant nature of our will provides the context for our freedom, our ability to compare goods. This animals do not do. Uh, just to show you the variability of man, okay, when presented with something. I remember this story, okay, I'll be brief because I have a few more things to say and I got a five minute card just about, mm, I'll say five seconds ago. And uh, there's a priest friend of mine and he was walking his dog in Berlin and he came into some dark alley and there was some massive growling dog that cornered them and was slowly walking toward him. Now what did he do and what did his dog do? His little pooch was just trying to run away. He grabbed it and he, and he thought about running away. Should I run? What should I do? But he deliberated. Okay. 
Animals, when they experience something as good or harmful, their, their response is automatic. Once they know something is good, their response is automatic. There is no deliberation. And so he said, as he deliberated, hmm, what would give us the best chance of success? And then he discovered what it might be. And so he picked up his dog, and he said, okay, Fido, on the count of three, one, two, three, and on the count of three, he threw his dog in the air, and he leapt at this other dog. And the other dog was, what is coming at me? It's like, you know, there's like six-legged weird thing. And he was kind of like, that was enough for him, and he, it, took, it took the edge off of the moment. You know? <laughs> And and and, he, and, he, and they were victorious and able to kind of move. Yeah, I, I think he might have, let's just say he caught him, too. He's very, very gifted. He, and then whoopsh, snagged the dog out of the air, and they went walking down the street. So, so man has this unique ability to deliberate. Because he knows his ultimate good, he can compare goods and evaluate them against that standard. Now... What is the relation then with our rational appetite and our sense appetite, our passions? And this is something that I wish I could speak more on. This is very, very exciting. I think good news. Now, our passions, our emotions, are they good or evil? Thomas says neither. They're neutral in and of themselves. That you have emotional responses of themselves is neutral. Animals, emotions are not blameworthy or meritorious. But ours are if they come under the influence of the will, which has ultimate say over what we do. Now, if you're not yet convinced that man has a higher appetite, let me show you this. How do you explain this? That I can want something and not want something at the same time. It happens all the time. On Friday during Lent, you know, and, and you're driving by, and someone says, here's this just mouth-watering cut of steak. You know, would you like this with every fiber of your being? Yes, I would like that. And, and what comes out of your mouth is, no, thank you, I'll have a salad. You know, you know, you know I, I mean, does that violate the principle of non-contradiction? Do I want it and not want it at the same time? No. One appetite wants it, the other appetite doesn't. And the appetite that has the final say is your will. Now, when your will acts in relationship to the passions, okay, your lower appetite, then those passions can become morally good or evil. Think about this. Anger. Not bad. Christ had righteous anger with, with, with the money changers in the temple. And in that case, that emotion was good. And, it, and Thomas says, even adds to the goodness of the act of the will. Okay? Now, obviously, if I get angry, someone steals the soccer ball from me. Uh, you know, one of, I, I coach the women's soccer team, one of the many things I do. And if one of my girls grabbed another girl by the hair and threw her to the ground, that would be an, uh, an inappropriate use okay, of her anger. That would be a, an example of her anger becoming evil because it's subordinate to an evil end. And I wish I could talk more about the will and, and immorality, and, and that, that might be for an ethics course. Uh, but that would make the action evil. But, he says, when you do good with passion, it becomes better. 
And that's what even the Psalms speak about. When it says, my heart and my flesh rejoiced in the living God. Thomas Aquinas says, the heart means your will. And your flesh is your emotions. Your whole self was incorporated into worshiping God. And as Catholics, that matters. That's why our body, our emotions are associated with our body, that we incorporate our bodies into worship. Okay, Because we want to worship God with our whole self. But, and this is one of the last things I'll say, and this is also good news, the will is inviolable. And this is something that's also good news. And it's been good news since the dawn of Christianity. The will is inviolable. What does that mean? It means that no external force can make you will what you do not want to will. Other things can influence us. Other things can persuade us. But they can't force your will to will what it does not want to will. And neither can your passions. Now, there, there's cases where the call of our passions, especially if we haven't trained them well, and one of the things we do with our will is train our passions to function in accord with reason. And if we have not trained our passions well, they can affect us in such a way that they can be very persuasive. But they can ultimately not force us to will what I don't want to will. For instance, it's not like, if, if you know, my, my, my dinner example, okay? All of a sudden, I, I say, no, I, I don't want the steak. And all of a sudden, my passions say, I don't care. <sighs> Give me a steak. And, you know, no, no, no. If your will says no, the answer is no. Okay? And you're only culpable. You're not culpable for acts done in compulsion. You know, if someone does something to you. Okay? And this is good news. Uh, this is good news back, back in the time of St. Augustine. Uh, he reflected on the, di the dignity of, of women and slaves in the city of God, is that even uh, in the sack of Rome, when people were violated and abused, if they did not consent to that violation and abuse, they were not defiled and they remained pure. Because what makes a man good or bad is his own will. And this is good news. Therefore, the only person that can make you be separated from God at the end of the day is yourself. And God has given us the dignity, whether we're slaves, okay? Uh, and I even I think I, I stumbled upon this when I read uh, you know, Harriet Beecher Stowe in eighth grade, Uncle Tom's Cabin. And he realized he, whatever even his slave master did to him, that he could not violate his will. And he could still love God, he could still serve God, and achieve his end. And he could not make him abandon the truth that he knows, nor abandon the good that he desires. Okay, and that's, a, that's a, an important reflection for all of us. We have it within our own power, okay, with God's grace, obviously, because there's so many influences that we have. That, that with, without God's grace, we're, we are largely hopeless. So, but we, cooperating with that grace, can freely will. And God wants us to co-work with him in doing good, in building virtue, and in ordering ourselves to him as our end. Because he, and then I'll finish with this, he is our end. And think about what an end is. It dictates every decision, every move. Now we can have partial ends, like to get to the store. And to get to the store, that explains why I turned right on this street, left on the next one, 
and right on the next street to get into the parking lot. Well, think about your decisions. If God is your ultimate end, then all of your decisions will be affected. And all of your decisions will be made in such a way that we order them to Him. And that is what He wills for us, is to order our lives to Him, uh, use those natures He's gave us, the freedom He's given us to do good, okay? to bring good into the world, and to be united to Him who has made Himself the only good that can satisfy the deepest longings of our heart. Thank you very much, yeah, Professor yeah. Wunsch. Yeah. You never thought you'd have fun doing philosophy, right? Yeah, no. It's the Institute of Catholic Culture. We have fun doing everything. Okay. Yeah. I'll hold the microphone so that we can get a good recording. Mm -hmm. Yes. How do we, as Christians, mm -hmm. express our good in the face of this negative glacier of people who see this negative good, mm -hmm. this hostile negative good that's uh, approach, approaching us. Mm -hmm. Do you understand what I'm saying? I, I, I believe so. It, it's a general question. It's an important question. And I'll answer it in broad strokes. Um, with holiness and courage, I mean, with holiness and courage uh, is, is, is the way I think we have to respond uh, you respond by going about the business that you feel in good conscience God has for you to do on earth and that you're bound by him to do. And when there's a conflict between what you feel bound to do by conscience and what someone else, some extrinsic force, is trying to prevent you to do when it's in conflict with what you, you, you feel you ought to do in good conscience, a good informed conscience, then you have to have the courage to do it anyway, I think, at the end of the day. You have to have the courage to be faithful to God. Uh, and, and you have to be, have the courage to be faithful to the truth, natural truth, revealed truth, and also to what God is calling each of us to, to in our own conscience and to be faithful to him, uh, even in spite of those times when uh, what we feel called to do in conscience is in conflict with what's being asked of us. At the end of your talk, you yeah. said how the will is inviolable, like you yeah, can't yeah, yeah. be forced to do something. How does that exactly jive mm -hmm. with the theory of yeah. the, the middle theory of man as a composite of body and soul? Mm -hmm. Because it seems yeah. as if you're forced to do something mm -hmm and it's an action of your entire being, mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. your will is in some way, shape, or form being violated. Yeah, uh, so, so uh, I, I think I do understand that question. It's a good question. Uh, when I say it, it cannot be violated, it does not mean it cannot be influenced. Okay? So we can be moved, but if we ultimately, in terms of the actions we perform, unless we consent to being moved in the way we are uh, being suggested to move by our passions, then we will not do that act. Okay? Now, it's true that there's some powers that don't come under the influence of the will. Okay? And those would be our nutritive powers. Those powers, powers of nutrition, circulation of our blood, and so forth, I mean, that is part of who we are as a man. And those powers don't come under the influence of the will. Okay? And so that's, that's fully true. But with our other powers, and I think, I think it's, it, it could speak from experience, uh, 
there is a conversation, okay, in some ways, between them uh, and our will, to, and, and they persuade, sometimes very fervently. But if, in spite of their fervent encouragement and prompting, that we reject doing what they encourage us to do, that's the end of the story. And that's what it means to be inviolable. Uh, within this uh, philosophy of man, what are the effects of original sin? Now, that's a good question. So, yeah, and I, I am, uh, just, just so you all know, my, my training is in philosophy. So whenever I say anything theologically, even my, my little homilet, fervorina, whatever you want to call it at the beginning of the hour, all of that you can take with a big grain of salt, you know. But, uh, but, but, but you know, I, I am a believer as well, and, uh, and, you know, and I try to relate my, my faith and reason together. And so, so uh, we can speak to that. As, as a philosopher and a believer, uh, there is a clouding of our mind and uh, an effect that the original sin has had on our will that obscures our vision of God as our end, okay, and that also uh, prevents us from doing good with ease. Uh, and thus we need, again, and this is the importance of building up virtue. Because before we build up virtue, we have no platform to do good with ease. Okay? And that's what virtue gives us. Uh, stuff, it's, it's like with working out uh, or getting up in the morning. At first, it's really, really, really hard to get up in the morning. But after you do that good act with repetition, it becomes easy. It can become easy. Some people are like, no. Yeah. Keep doing it. Keep doing it, yeah, Francis. Keep doing it. Eventually, uh, you'll prove me right. You know, like, yeah, it's like you know, maybe five minutes after you're dead. You know, yeah, yeah. when God raises you, yeah, then it'll be easy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. How about easier? Easier? Okay. All right. Yeah. We'll see. Again. Uh, original sin has certainly clouded our, our intellects, and, and it prevents us, again, from uh, readily seeing our end and ordering our acts in accord with that end. And, and that's why, I mean, just in, in all seriousness, so in the first question of the Summa, Thomas says something really interesting. He said there's a moral, for man, there's a moral necessity that God reveal himself for man. Why? Because... Man needs to get to God, and he needs to know what to do to get there. And he says that, that man, in terms of even discovering that God is his end, which we already stated, is not conscious to everybody. Something that Thomas says that people only come to naturally without the help of revelation, it's only known by a few. And even then, after a long time, and with an admixture of air. Okay? And yet, we need to know right away what to do. And so for us to get to where we're going, there was a moral necessity for man, for God to reveal himself. And so it's true that philosophy can kind of come to some of these conclusions on its own, but it's not easy. And some people don't even have the time or leisure to do it. You're busy farming. You're busy doing, taking care of your family. Uh, to, to, to study philosophy and theology, to know St. Thomas's proofs for the existence of God. Uh, you know, these take time. They're difficult. Even those proofs are misunderstood by so many people, even professional philosophers. So, so, that's, so that speaks to the moral necessity. 
for man, he needs God's revelation to really know what his end is and to act accordingly. But then what's nice about it then, we see that what we discover even by rationally thinking is that that how we're made is in accord with what God intends for us as well. And we find you know, what God has revealed about man's life morally is compatible and, and highly complementary with, with our own musings upon our nature that we and, and sometimes other great thinkers have done philosophically. Where do, you, where do you base the primacy of conscience, intellect or will? It's a good question. It, 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 the conscience... Is, is something that's, that's primarily uh, intellectual. Uh, it's, it's primarily intellectual. We speak of forming one's conscience. Uh, we form our conscience by reflecting on what we should do. Now, what we should do, knowing that, is knowledge of the intellect in its practical function. Now, the intellect is very interesting bird, okay? We have an agent and possible intellects uh, that allow us to know the essence of, of material things. But we also have the intellect which knows speculative truth, things that are good in and of themselves. And then they also know practical truth. Ethics, political science, economics, other, other forms of art deal with the praxis, the acting of man. In other words, it, it's the knowing of truth for the sake of action. And so that's the use of the intellect in its practical function. However, we discover some of that through practice. (laughs) Through making choices and reflecting on them, we are able to better know what to do. Uh, I mean, and and that's just the basic human experience. I mean, Aristotle says that the young people shouldn't do ethics or they struggle with ethics. One, they're too influenced by their passions. And two, they haven't had enough lived experience to really know, have practical wisdom. And so it's in, in, in experiencing, in willing and acting, that we actually do discover better how we should act. And, and, and conscience deals with how we should act. So it's primarily an intellectual function, the intellect in its practice, in the practical function of the intellect, not its speculative functions. But, but, but that knowledge comes from an evaluation of what we have willed to do. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thanks, thanks. Yeah, thanks, and a good night with you guys. Thank you. Buona serata, ci vediamo tutti. Dio ti vendica. You gotta get home and go to sleep. I know, I know, I know. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.